Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My guest this week is the Labour Member of Parliament for Lancaster and Fleetwood and the Shadow Secretary of State for Young People and Democracy, Kat Smith. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Nathan. It's a pleasure to see you this morning. Thank you. The Labour Party has had some pretty big electoral setbacks recently. Is Keir Starmer the person to turn Labour's fortunes around? I think we live in like quite challenging political times. And, uh, you know, obviously I've recently been campaigning uh, in the Batley and Spen by-election, which was Labour, Labour did win. And, um, uh, you know, the last 18 months of all our lives have changed beyond all recognition. And it's reflected, I think, in quite a lot of the politics that we're seeing played out um, in polls. And certainly the last set of elections that we had in May 21 uh, were huge because they were a set of elections that included the set of elections that should have also happened in May 2020. They got cancelled and moved 12 months. So we had a kind of bumper set of polls and it was probably, if I'm being fair, like quite a mixed mixed bag. And there's no doubt that, you know, results like Hartlepool are you know, incredibly disappointing. And But then there were also some um, examples where we did win in areas of the South of England where we hadn't been necessarily expected to so I so I think that the picture across Britain is actually quite varied in different places and the challenges that the Labour Party face uh, in Scotland are different to the ones in Wales and different you know within England obviously there's a huge diversity of political challenges facing the party um, and all the while we've had um, basically government ministers of any of the nations in the UK basically having frequent media appearances because of coronavirus so for, for the Labour Party obviously I think that probably did play to our advantage in Wales where Mark Drakeford was you know every you know few days like broadcasting to the nation Welsh Labour did, did incredibly well in that set of elections it was our best set of elections that we've had um, it matched our best so you know it's fair to say that, that it's a varied picture and the polls are very volatile um, and increasingly voters are very volatile in terms of their commitment to saying that they would always vote for a certain political party or never vote for another political party that's kind of breaking down uh, I think that we have an electorate that are uh, more willing to look at alternatives than they perhaps have been in past generations now uh, it, that obviously comes with threats when you look at your own vote base, but it also comes with opportunities when you look at others. You're absolutely right to mention the changing uh, voter trends and demographics, but it's not just uh, throughout the pandemic and lockdown we've seen this. The 2019 general election saw Labour's worst results since 1935. And as well as that, in the in the local elections, as you mentioned, the Labour Party lost councils it's held for decades, or even in the case of Durham County Council, held for a century. And of course, there's the, uh, as you mentioned, there's Hartlepool uh, in Chesham and Amersham, which was won by the Liberal Democrats. It was Labour's worst by-election result ever. So 
Why do you think Labour's message isn't resonating with the electorate? Uh, the Cheshire and Amersham is, I, I think that it does come down to sometimes the electorate, you know, will want to, you know, it's anyone but a Tory kind of attitude. And I, I don't doubt that there is tactical voting going on in seats like this. And I, and I actually see it in my own seat with, um, you know, some of my vote as, as a Labour MP probably comes from people who aren't necessarily like Labour, but they, they really don't want the Tories to win it. So, so they will tactically vote. And, and under our electoral system that we have, that is a reality of what, how, how quite a lot of electoral politics uh, plays out. But there's no doubt that as social democratic parties uh, across um, Europe and the Western world have, I think, had, had a quite a long-term challenge around sort of securing that voter base. And, and I think it's part of a wider problem. And I, I think you, if you just think it's a UK Labour problem, you're kind of missing the bigger picture about the sort of trends globally. Uh, around the challenges for social democracy in the 21st century and what does that look like and you know that that's that is a big challenge and that's probably a whole podcast on its own um but the best thing we can do as a labor party is to have that positive message you know we, we challenge the government uh, where we think they're wrong but we are living through a global pandemic there have been points in the last 18 months where uh, there has been huge uncertainty when we didn't really know what the impact of coronavirus was going to be how it's going to affect things and you know we are a mature opposition in the sense of you know when I, i'm the shadow minister that covers things like elections and law, electoral law stuff when the minister comes to me and says we can't run these polls in may 2020 because it's not safe i say absolutely i agree let's work together and let's you know ensure that we can move these polls by 12 months you know the opposition you know we're not seeking to oppose everything the government does because actually sometimes these things just have to happen but there's no doubt this government has completely misplayed um quite a lot of the issues around coronavirus. They were too slow to lock down initially, uh, too quick to release. Um, now we're in a situation where infection rates are rising. Uh, and I'm a Lancashire MP and our rates in Lancashire are, are you know, way above the English average. So, so we are part of England that is seeing very high infection rates. Uh, and you know the ideology of that we are going to unlock and not roll back is very dangerous because we still actually only have 48% of our population vaccinated because that population includes children and often the government are using statistics which exclude children but we know children can contract and uh, transmit this virus now um, only 48% of our population is fully vaccinated so that means the majority of our population mm. are not now th this yeah. is increasing the risk for var new variants coming out um, and I just worry about the way in which we look at our NHS. My local NHS trust is frequently in touch with me with the latest statistics about how many beds they've got, how many block beds they've got. Um, sadly, this week, um, my local trust has been in touch to say they've had another death because of coronavirus in one of my local hospitals. You know, the, the NHS is having a summer crisis right now. We're seeing the levels of NHS use, at what we would expect in winter. And it's July. Mm -hmm. So things are not hunky dory. This, you know, 19th July unlocking is not some freedom day. In fact, for many people who are vulnerable and shielding, it's 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 actually a loss of freedoms for, for many of them. And I do think they've been forgotten about in this crisis. Mm -hmm. Um because of the the absolute hunger by the Prime Minister to, to just unlock because he said he would unlock. Uh, what happened to following the data and not the dates? Because that seems to have gone out the window, doesn't it? Well, ju just on the lockdown restrictions and the easing, we are, we are seeing the vaccination programme go well. And as you say, you know, we've not reached 50% of the entire population. And you, you mentioned the, the idea of uh, children uh, carrying the virus and uh, that can potentially spread it. 
But the, the government has already said that at, at this present time, they aren't going to consider vaccinating children. That's the recommendation from the Joint Centre for Vaccinations and Immunisations. So when the vaccination programme for adults is going so well and the lockdown restrictions have brought so much economic hardship, especially to young people who've seen their education disrupted and uh, other aspects of their lives uh, sort of th thrown up in the air. Is delaying the lifting of lockdown not caution for caution's sake when the hospitalisation rates and the death rates are at some of their lowest points throughout the pandemic? I'm not saying that there's necessarily a delay. I think that the, the recklessness is the idea that you, you're going to so sort of remove the requirements that wear things like face coverings in, in public spaces. The, you know, it's the um, ignoring the advice around things like ventilation. So, so like we're approaching, we're talking about young people. Yes, their education has been interrupted and it is continuing to be interrupted. And many young people will have missed almost as much school in, in recent months than they did during the like first lockdown because of bubbles of school bubbles being taken out because of someone in the bubble who's contracted coronavirus um, so, so at any one point you know there have been so many children out of school and missing school days and actually in the northwest of England it's had the highest um, rate of it of absences just because of coronavirus outbreaks so um, you know as a northwest MP I go you know walk down to the local shop and there are kids everywhere not because they're uh, skipping school but because they're, they're not allowed in school because of the bubbles have been closed and you know the parents are trying to work and guess what guess what they're not actually sitting at home and self-isolating and it's creating further risks so there's an awful lot of policy issues there that go wrong but we could use the school summer holidays to install ventilation systems in every classroom now these aren't big complicated systems uh, they're small pieces of kit they're actually manufactured in Britain and if we could get some government support behind some of those manufacturers to support British industry and put ventilation systems in our school that is great for the economy it's great for jobs and it's really great for our kids education because it will reduce the risk of transmission in the next academic year um, and when it comes to vaccinations I, I, I you know I get my son vaccinated against flu every year um, because it is the responsible thing to do. I wouldn't hesitate if it was licensed for his age group to get him vaccinated with the coronavirus vaccine. And, you know, Pfizer, the, the vaccine has been uh, licensed for use in people younger than we're currently using it in. And I think there's a discussion uh, to, to offer, offer, not force, but offer that vaccine to, to younger people because there are an awful lot of children and young people who are worried about contracting coronavirus, not because they think it's necessarily going to be fatal for them, but because of the risks of long COVID. And we are seeing increasing examples of children and young people who have had coronavirus that have gone on to contract um, long COVID and are living with some incredibly challenging health problems. And you know what, you're only young once and you only get that once uh, opportunity to like go to school and grow up and, and be a young person and I just don't want to see that blighted for people because they're dealing with health problems where they're getting fatigued uh, permanent headaches uh, and just can't enjoy being a young person because it has been pretty rubbish being a young person in the last 18 months let's face it mm. it's tough growing up whenever you grow up but I think the last 18 months mm. have been particularly horrible for for young people growing up and we've talked we talk about loneliness and isolation and often people think about old people well 
loneliness and isolation can affect young people as well and there's a lot of young people who have been cut off from their friends and their social networks and they have been trapped in homes not always safe homes uh, not always secure homes uh, often in quite dangerous situations hmm. and it's been missed because they're not going to school they're not in that extra support they're not it's not getting picked up so things like referrals to things like social services child protection has declined because we, we aren't being able to identify those kind of issues. So there are so many issues affecting young people because of coronavirus. Um, and I, I just would like the government to look more seriously at our young people's well-being in a holistic way, rather than purely focusing on academic attainment, which is important, but our young people aren't going to be ready to learn whilst mental health crises amongst young people is at the level it's at. Of course, you're absolutely right in saying that. And of course, we, we know that the Department for Education recently commissioned a report into uh, how to enhance education for the, the, the new normal that we're seeing. And we're, uh, of course, there's the controversy around Sir Kevin Collins resigning due to a, a shortfall in the funding for his plans. But we have done the vaccination programme for the most vulnerable, including some children, as as you mentioned, but now that we have got those most vulnerable vaccinated and again, the vaccination program is proceeding as planned, the lifting of restrictions as is now, and you mentioned the idea of face masks, we've had the best part of 16 months now where the state has been mandating people to what they can and cannot do. So is it not time now for the public to exercise some personal responsibility and just, we, we know what's right and what's wrong. And especially around face masks, it, people will feel if they feel more comfortable to wear a face mask on public transport they have the option to do so rather than being compelled by law i think trusting the public to use their common sense is we're assuming that common sense is quite common mm-hmm. and i i'm certainly i'm, I'm a massive england football fan uh, but i am embarrassed by some of the actions some of our fans took at the weekend and some of the reckless behavior so i think that's an example of where Asking the public to use their common sense is a reminder that not everybody has common sense. Now, on the, on the face coverings issue, if you are not, I mean, taking aside anyone who's medically exempt, I totally accept that. When I wear my face covering, I wear it on public transport, mm-hmm. I am uh, to some extent protecting myself, but I am wearing it actually to protect those people around me because I don't know who is sat around me on public transport. Uh, I don't know who who lives with someone who's vulnerable or has an you know, compressed kind of health condition. I don't know um, who's having cancer treatment. I don't know, you know, any of these things about the people sat around me on public transport. And I wear my mask to protect them. And I think that is the right thing to do because I believe that my values uh, say that I should, you know, respect my neighbour, uh, love my neighbour. I'm a Christian, and I, and I kind of maybe come at this through those kind of Christian values as well. There is someone who says, you know, I'm going to protect those people around me from a virus that I might have. I mean, I test twice a week, but I might well contract it and, and be transmitting it and be totally unaware of it. I'm going to take this small precaution, and I'm a glasses wearer, so I don't thoroughly enjoy wearing face coverings, to be quite honest with you. Uh, my glasses steam up, and it's, it's just a bit inconvenient, and I've spent most of the last year looking through kind of fog in my glasses. Mm. Um, however, I will do that to protect those around me, because I believe that it is right that we protect our most vulnerable. And I think we should judge a society by how they protect the most vulnerable people in it. So I am proud to wear my face covering, not because I enjoy wearing it. I hate the fact my face gets hot and sweaty and my glasses steam up, but because I want to do that 
to protect those people around me, those people in my community, but even people I don't know, because I'm an MP, I travel up and down the West Coast mainline. You know, I, these are these people right across sort of England and Scotland that, that are going up and down this line. I've no idea who these people are. I will probably never get to know them, but I want to protect them. And I, that is the right thing to do. Um, so, so I think some of the uh, ways in which people want to sort of throw off all the masks and burn them and never wear them again is reckless. And it's making people feel fearful. If you've been unable to have the vaccine for medical reasons, and there are many people who are like that, if you're unable to have it, suddenly the idea of going on public transport when no one's wearing face coverings is actually restricting your freedoms. So I don't think it's much of an ask for those people who are able to wear face coverings to wear them to protect those that I that can't or that those who are particularly vulnerable. All right. Well, well, let's let's move away from some of the lockdown and uh, pandemic restrictions, and let's look a little bit more into some things that you cover in your brief with the uh, portfolio for young people and democracy. And something you've been quite opposed to is the government's plans for voter identification at elections. So. What, why have you been so critical of the government wanting to be proactive in ensuring elections are held as securely as possible? Yeah, obviously, everybody wants elections to be held as securely as possible. Um, however, this proposal, uh, it just it, it falls down every bit of scrutiny that you throw at it. So first of all, it is a solution looking for a problem. Um, there, there, electoral fraud happens, but electoral fraud uh, primarily is not personation at polling stations, which is what this policy um, says it seeks to, to solve the problem of. If you look at personation in polling stations, uh, there were 59 million votes cast in 2019 in this country, and there was one conviction for personation at a polling station. So it is incredibly, incredibly rare, and uh, to put it in a bit of a human context, you need to be struck by lightning three times and be have your vote stolen by personation at a polling station. So it's incredibly rare. The vast majority of electoral fraud, by the way, is committed by political campaigners and parties uh, doing things like um, fraudulent addresses or fraudulent nomination papers and stuff like that. But none of the electoral law proposed changes by the government would address any of those issues, which are actually the vast chunk of electoral fraud. So it's picking out a very specific form of electoral fraud that's incredibly, incredibly rare um, I would say to suppress voters, because if you ask someone to show a photo ID before they vote, you immediately exclude um, around seven and a half percent of people who would not have access to this kind of uh, ID. You actually make it difficult even for those people who do have those forms of ID. You know, it's something else to do before you go and vote and by looking around for your passport, looking in that kitchen drawer, or, you know, behind the sofa or wherever it is, oh, where did I leave it? And, you know, all of that stuff is a, is a deterrent to voting. It will drive down turnout. Uh, it's consistently shown across the US where similar laws um, uh, are already used, but it drives down turnout. It drives down turnout amongst in the US uh, sort of black and Hispanic voters. You're more likely to vote Democrats, which is why uh, it's very much a Republican policy. So when we see Republican uh, states trying to bring in these laws, it is to repress their opposition's votes. Uh, and I fear that, that, quite frankly, the Conservative government is doing the same same here, and it is the same approach. And the other reason uh, that I would say it is a, a stupid thing to do is the scale of the cost. So it's an expensive um, system to bring in, so it will cost about 120 million pounds over 10 years. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of money to try and, um, you know, f for like a handful at most of cases that have not actually changed any electoral results. Um, to put that into context, so that, that money could be spent on 9,000 more police officers. 
Mm. And if you ask the general public which one they think will actually help to reduce crime and it would affect their life, I don't doubt for one second mm. they would rather have 9,000 more police officers than this extra requirement to show ID to combat a, a, a fraud that doesn't really exist. You're right to mention the uh, the high costs of all this, but as mentioned, it is a proactive measure and the cabinet office has openly said that everyone eligible to vote will be able to do so and that all the voter id cards would be issued free to those who needed it to prove their identities so how how can a voter identification document disenfranchise people when the government is openly offering it to every voter who needs this document for free. And so, so local councils will be asked to provide um, ID cards uh, to electors who do not have the required ID, that's right. Um, but there is absolutely no requirement on those councils to be offering this service and, and any sort of minimum standard guarantee. So you could be in a situation where you don't have passport driving license, but you, you want to go and get your free voter ID, but the town halls only open between 12 and 2 to do voter ID cards on a Thursday, and you work then. There are many ways that we can increase the security of our democracy, and we can do that by increasing um, participation in our democracy, i.e. the more people who vote, the more secure it is, the harder it is to swing an election, either by a rogue state or by things like personation or polarizations. We can drive up participation in democracy by ensuring that everyone's registered to vote, bringing automatic voter registration to get those missing millions on the electoral roll in the first place. But we can also then uh, make sure that our democracy is is, is more accessible. So you know, why do we vote on a Thursday? Like, why why can't I vote in the supermarket for you on my way in? Like, there are so many ways in which we could actually make it easier to participate in our democracy, increase turnout, and actually that would increase the security of our democracy. Mm-hmm. Okay, my, my, my final question, um, I'd, I'd like to ask you to comment on a, a tweet by what one of your colleagues in the Labour Party, Lloyd Russell Moyle, who said that Labour Party is not a unionist party. And Mr Russell Moyle's comments was endorsed by the former Shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott. So c- can you tell me definitively, is the Labour Party a unionist party? The Labour Party is a unionist party. Uh, I'm, I'm a unionist. I... Um, believe that the struggles that face ordinary working people in Scotland and Wales are very much the same challenges that face working people in England and that actually all our interests are served far better by working together and meeting these challenges and actually in a globalised world you know it's important that we work together the the absolute biggest threat to all of us is is climate chaos and the effects of climate change and meeting our obligations there that isn't something that you can do in isolation. So actually, I think there's a really positive case to make for the Union of the United Kingdom. Uh, and that is something that I'm very passionate uh, about and something that I will continue to campaign on. Kat Smith, thank you very much for coming on the show. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.